Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my pleasure now to introduce Phyllis Pfeiffer, who will conduct tonight's interview. Uh, Phyllis is the publisher of the La Jolla Light, and I'm pleased to acknowledge that the Light has recently become the media sponsor for the Ravel Forum series. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. um, Phyllis began her newspaper career at the Light in the 1970s, and she returned uh, relatively recently to San Diego after many years in the Bay Area, where she ran the Marin Independent Journal and was senior vice president at the San Francisco Chronicle. So please join me now in welcoming Phyllis Pfeiffer, who will introduce Frank Bruni. Thank you. Thank you and welcome. Frank Bruni is best known for his work as restaurant critic for the New York Times. His accomplishments go on and on. And rather than recite them all to you, I'm going to refer you to your program uh, so that you can read uh, his biography, a most impressive one, uh, to be sure. A more productive introduction, I believe, is to tell you that Frank is not only an exquisite writer, but he is a Renaissance writer with an amazing ability to cover a broad subject, broad field of subjects. I've been in the newspaper business for more than 35 years, and it is very, very rare to find a writer who has the ability to uh, master everything from hard news covering Congress and the White House, um, feature stories, profiling celebrities and um, public figures, and even criticism reviewing movies and restaurants. It is an extraordinary portfolio of work. Frank, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This book that Frank wrote is very different than the two others that he wrote before. It is very personal. It is very intimate. It is about him, which is also very rare for a reporter. They cover other people. They don't talk about themselves. And in this book, you um, chronicle your lifelong battle with overeating. And it's a destructive effects that it had on your personal life, on your relationships, on your self-image. Every professional tome that I've written, or read, not written, but read, and every theory talks about some moment, whether it is, uh, it attributes it to a, a religious or a spiritual or an emotional, some breakthrough that creates change in people's lives. What forces were you able to muster that created this change in your life, that you could overcome the obstacles that you were unable to transcend before? You know, for me, it probably wasn't um, any one moment, but in my mid-30s, uh, my mid-30s were, my, were my, my bad point, were my, when I kind of hit bottom, if you were going to use the language of an addict. And in some ways, overeating is a little bit like an addiction. Um, and there were a sequence of things that happened in my mid-30s after I'd been miserably overweight for a couple of years. Um, and one was going into the doctor's office at one point, and, and I knew I had gained an enormous amount of weight. I mean, I knew I was wearing pants that were a lot bigger than the pants I'd worn two years 
prior. Um, but I did what I'd always done during my life, um, and I told the doctor when he was examining me not to tell me what I weighed. You know, I would turn my head away when I got on the scale. Um, and as I stepped off, off the scale, he said, you weigh 268 pounds. And as bad as I knew things had gotten, I didn't know they'd gotten that bad. Or so I, you didn't have a scale? No, I still don't have a scale, you know. I think anybody, anybody who has kind of food issues and food secrets and a weird relationship with eating has just little foibles and, and oddities. Um, and one of mine is I never want to know what I weigh. I figure I know what size pants I'm wearing. Um, I have other measures of whether I'm doing well or doing badly, but I just don't want to look at that number. If it's better than I think it's going to be, I don't want to be lured into a false sense of security by that. And if it's worse, worse than I want it to be, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to get too sad about it. So it was the doctor's office, it was the number, and that was the turning point for you? I mean, it told me what I kind of knew but was trying to ignore, and and it told me that it it just, it was embarrassing to me. So Um, did you just stop eating? No. um, It actually took a while after that. I mean, that was the moment when I realized I had to do something, and I had to do it at the earliest available opportunity. My problem at that time, and one of the reasons I'd gotten so out of control, was I was working, you know, 80 hours a week. I was covering politics in Washington, and um, after... After that moment, I was still covering the the Bush White House, uh, traveling a lot, um, really didn't have a lot of control over my schedule. Um, And one of the things I think you need to try to do or be able to do if you're going to turn around an eating problem like I did is uh, you have to kind of have a more sane life that you can schedule. I mean, you have to have some control over it. So that was a moment when my resolve began to build. And then as soon as I stepped off the, the fast track in terms of political reporting and had more control over my schedule, I got things together. In your book, you talked about learning to eat like an Italian. Now, I grew up in Brooklyn where marinara sauce was mother's milk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How is eating like an... That's not eating like an Italian. So talk to me about eating like an Italian versus eating like an Italian-American. Well, when we talk about an Italian-American or, or when we talk about the way... Wow, now it's really loud. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it too loud? It's okay. It's too I don't want to hear me like this. <laughs> um, they paid. We, we, we have to make them happy. When I was growing up in an Italian-American immigrant family, uh, I mean, the key being immigrant, I associated Italian eating with overabundance, superabundance, like, you know, just kind of having more on the table than anybody could possibly eat and then trying to eat it all. But that was an immigrant thing. That was about coming, you know, uh, from a poorer place to a new world, wanting to uh, to show how wealthy you were through how much you could put out food-wise, wanting to show your neighbors how much you had. Um, when I went to live in Italy later in life, um, I saw some something very different, and I saw something that we in America really need to pay attention to, which is uh, a focus on quality instead of quantity. You know, it struck me as I moved around Italy, you never see a sign for an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, which... Because the, the notion that eating as much as you possibly could until you're nearly bursting, that's not seen as a virtue, you know? Um, you never see words like supersize or big gulp or value pack, you know? Um, we have this really weird notion in this country. You know, it's not just that we want to drive big cars. We want to eat big meals. You know, everything bigger is better in this country. And when it comes to food, that's really, really dangerous. Interesting. You know, in your book, you talk about the irony of 
being asked to be a restaurant critic at the point in your life where you finally got control of your weight. So now you have to go out to dinner six times a week and taste everything on the menu. And um, so, so there's an irony. But I also saw another inconsistency. Much of your early life you spent hiding from criticism about your body. Mm-hmm. You were very self-conscious about your body. You wore puffy jackets. The minute you got out of the pool at a swim meet, you raced for the towel. You even shunned intimate relationships um, because of your weight. Mm-hmm. That moment you decided you were not the right weight and you didn't want to connect with anybody. And so what I see as a contradiction is you then accept a job as a restaurant critic, which almost guarantees massive criticism. Everybody's a food critic. Everybody either agrees with you, disagrees with you, thinks you're smart, thinks you're an idiot. So you spend a great deal of your most life... Of them, most of them an idiot. <laughs> you spend a lot of your life avoiding criticism, and then you allow yourself to be open to all this criticism. How, how do you... How, how do you explain that contradiction? You know, it, it's not. It does sound like a contradiction, but it's really not. Um, I I didn't want to hide from things anymore. You know, when I was during those years in my mid thirties, when I was really heavy, I kind of retreated from the world in a lot of ways. In some ways, I didn't. I was professionally very active. I was covering um, uh, Bush's presidential campaign. I was covering the White House. But most public things that I could avoid, I did. You know, most intimate relationships, I avoided. Um, and after I got healthier again, um, I kind have said to myself, I don't want to not do anything again because I'm frightened of it or because it might bring exposure and criticism. I want to say yes to those things that scare me along that along the, those particular lines. So um, I thought this is going to be a great life adventure. It's going to be an extraordinary challenge. There are so many reasons to do it, and that one reason not to do it because I'll be exposed to criticism. I don't want to be the person who doesn't take it for that reason. But it's hard. It was hard at times. Was it hard? Absolutely. Were there times that it was painful? Well, I I carefully, yeah, of course. But I carefully, um, I mean, you find ways to manage it. Um, I I think I have friends at the Times who do very public uh, jobs, and they have their names on Google Alerts, and they they read every single thing that is is written or blogged or now tweeted about them, you know. Um, I don't. Because, you know, I know myself well enough to know that it'll no drive scale. me crazy. Huh? No scale. I don't get on the scale, you know, and I don't go and look at what people are tweeting. So what was the worst criticism you experienced as a restaurant critic? Um, you know, there was no one thing, but I mean, I, 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 stuff, stuff reaches you even if you decide to edit the world down. And, you know, I, I frequently saw um, uh, things uh, saying that, you know, I, I knew nothing or that I was a terrible writer. Or, so, I mean, there was no one thing, but, you know, you, you do, that does kind of get through your filter. Um, you're aware that there must be a lot more of it if that much is getting through your filter. Um, but I don't think there was any one thing I ever read Not or saw. Not even Shadro? No, that didn't bother me. She's referring to a restaurateur who took out a full-page ad um, denouncing me in the Times opposite my column. And I want to... And he also paid $40,000 to do this. And I I, want to say I'm still bitter. There was no commission from the advertising department for me. You know, I brought that ad to the paper. Um, and 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 during economically difficult times, you know, so... 
I still think there's, there should be a bonus in there somewhere. But um, you know what? That one didn't bother me that much because he, uh, you know, he's a, he's a hothead, uh, volatile. Tell them and, who it is. Um, Tell them about the restaurant. Uh, well, Jeffrey Chattero is an extremely successful uh, restaurateur in New York, but he's kind of coasting on past glories. He he opened a restaurant called China Grill that did very well and um, and was cloned elsewhere around the country and world. He opened a restaurant called Asia to Cuba, which you probably maybe even may, may, may have eaten in the one in L.A. Um, those still make enough money that they funded a sequence of failures in recent years. And that's not just me being bitter. That's No, I mean, that's true. He's, he's, um, he hasn't had a hit restaurant in a while. And I think that fed his frustration. Um, he, opened a, he opened a couple of restaurants under my watch, uh, some of which I didn't even bother reviewing, so I think we were already on bad terms. And then he opened one called Kobe Club, which was devoted to different kinds of Wagyu beef from around the world. Um, and I gave it a full-fledged review with zero stars, and uh, he was not pleased with that. Um, and so he, he took out this full-page ad. But no, that was not... Is a, the restaurant still open? You know, I'm not sure. I think it recently closed. Um, it's always teetering on, on the precipice. It's not... It's not, not it was about 40000 short of profit. Yeah. <laughs> um, did I mention that he's an ex-felon? Because he is. But anyway, that's not... Um, um, Oh, that's true. What uh, was the best adulation you received? What I mean, there, there had to be restaurants that you helped in. Um... You know, I did this um, in in uh, in early 2008. I did this uh, several week tour of the country. Um, I didn't get down to San Diego, but I did get to LA, where I visited some of the most um, uh, well received new restaurants that had opened in calendar 2007, and and I ranked them in order. Um, and the the two restaurants that ended up at the top of the list, um, uh, number one was a, a Japanese place in Boston called Oya, uh, which is a fantastic place if you're ever in Boston. I recommend it. My daughter is moving in two weeks. She should go. She should go. Um, And then number two is a place in the Napa Valley called Ubuntu, which is a vegetarian restaurant attached to a yoga studio. Um, So it's a kooky place for starters, and and, and because of that context, its it's magnificence is all the more surprising and kind of fun. But um, I, I was never aware until I did that series how national the audience for reviews was. Um, and both Oya and Ubuntu, I mean, every two or three months since those articles appeared, I get, you know, I get these, these just uh, heartfelt, uh, th- you know, dripping with gratitude messages from their owners about how much, not just immediately, but through time, how much business those write-ups brought them. Um, and that's just an amazing, wonderful feeling to, to be able to experience Experience real merit, and there was no doubt. There's no doubt that these are terrific restaurants. To be able to experience it, shout it to the world, and actually have it benefit the people who deserve to have their work recognized. I mean, that's just an unbelievable privilege. That's great. Most of your career, I think I read this quote about you, was spent covering prime ministers, not prime beef. You, prior to ascending to the foodie throne of, of the world, um, you had never written about food. I think I've read that you claim that you are a lousy cook. I am a lousy cook. I've caused kitchen fires. True, no, truly. Yeah. So what did, 
you have to learn in order to do the job as restaurant critic? What new knowledge did you have to gain, and how did you do it? What, what, what you really have to learn or acquire is a new vocabulary, but if you have been a lifelong enthusiastic, in my case, over-enthusiastic eater, um, and if you've been uh, you know, blessed enough to travel widely, um, and if you've, if you've been raised in a family as I was that loved restaurants and spent money on restaurants, you, haven't, you already have an enormous uh, broad frame of reference. And you probably have a lot of thoughts you just haven't kind of stopped to, to, to organize and, and dwell on. All you really need in that, in that sort of circumstance is the vocabulary. Um, and that you can get by just uh, reading in a newly attentive way. Um, you know, just, just Did you read cookbooks? I didn't read cookbooks, but I, I, I had always been a reader of food memoirs, which is one of the reasons, and we can come to this, why I decided to write this unusual food memoir. But I'd always been a reader of food memoirs, um, and I, I reread some of my favorites and read some others. Like what? Give, oh, give us some examples. Well, I reread some of uh, one of my predecessors at the time, Ruth Reichel. I reread some of her books. You know, I mean, some of them were obvious candidates, A.J. Liebling, uh, stuff like that. Um, and... Uh, just because I wanted to be swimming in, in, in that particular pool of thoughts and words, you know. But, but I, I realized um, uh, that, that I had a lot of information, a lot of perspective that I just hadn't kind of formalized because I never knew I would be, you know, harnessing it and marshalling it in the direction of, of reviews. And so why did you write this book? Well, when I read, uh, when I was reading all those food memoirs um, in a more kind of organized, concentrated way, I was struck how um, they were all about the romance of eating. Um, you know, two, one after the other, it was just about the romance of eating. And I thought, you know, I, I see nothing from these prominent food writers that acknowledges the comedy and melodrama of overeating. You know, and then I began to, um, to do the job in New York, and um, I met a lot of fellow food writers, uh, some of whom would come to the table with me, you know, and, and, and help, not help me, but would be my fellow eaters at reviews. And you've never seen more careful eaters in your life. I mean, these are people who, if they weren't paying attention, if they weren't showing restraint, it would go way off the rails because they're always around good food. And they're people who have really honed their willpower and discipline, and no one cleans their plates. And I thought, you know, all of us, we, we encourage everyone to kind of, you know, just take a big plunge into great food with what we write. And we never tell the other side of the story. We never say that for those of us who are living in this world that we're exhorting you to come join us in, you know, we've had to make some very, very careful decisions, and we've had to muster a very, uh, you know, deliberate willpower in order to enjoy this stuff ourselves and not be undone by it. So I wanted to tell that fuller, truer story. Interesting. You mentioned earlier the cross-country tour. You, one of the things I think that noted your writing in the Times about restaurants was that you went often beyond the simple reviews. Could you share with us some of the uh, more unorthodox and unusual uh, writing that you did about food and restaurants while you were at the Times? Sure, yeah. Um, I, uh, I think the one that got the most notice was um, I worked um, undercover, so to speak, as a waiter in a restaurant in Boston. I thought it would be interesting after a couple of years of criticism to you know turn the tables on oneself. And so we found a... Um, uh, or I found a restaurateur in Boston who was willing 
to he had to know who I was because you can't just show up on someone's door and have a full-fledged job for the next week with no resume. So which know? restaurant was it? Uh, it was a restaurant called the East Coast Grill in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was the perfect kind of mix of formal and informal um, to dive into without a lot of training. You know, I mean, you can't just show up at the doorstep of the French Laundry and say, you know, I'm going to wait tables for a week. You know, it's just not going to happen. But the, the owner knew, the owner was in on it. He knew, um, he knew what I was doing there. But I was introduced to the staff as just some uh, freelance writer named Gavin from New York who was, um, who was doing a piece. Um, I have a nephew named Gavin. So. But, I mean, it was an interesting experience because for the first couple days, you know, I'd be, I'd be working and, you know, one of my fellow waiters would be saying, Gavin, Gavin, Gavin. And I'd be like, who the hell are they talking to, you know? And I think they thought I was either deaf or, or severely, uh, you know, disabled. Um, both of which are a little true. But... Um, so I, I, so, I, so I actually kind of waited tables for a week, but not as Frank Bruni as this just kind of average... And what did you learn doing that? I learned that customers are really mean, you know? I mean, I mean I've always, to, to be honest, people always said, did it change you? Are you now like a better, a, a better... I've always been a really, a, really, a really good customer. I've always tipped well and all that. But um, just people are strange. When they, when, they, um, when they sit in that restaurant seat, they, they rightly believe, or we rightly believe, that, like this is our time, you know, and that we're the boss. But people take that feeling in some very interesting um, and not always savory directions. Like such, there, there are people. Oh, oh, uh, you know, um, the number of invented allergies. People claim to be allergic to things that I think scientifically it's impossible to be allergic to. You know, but they just they just want to control the environment. You know, but you know, I also learned that as a waiter, you can take little bits of revenge. You can say. <laughs> spit in anybody's dinner, did you? No, no. But you can say the kitchen's out of something when you think they might still have it left, just because, you know, someone might deserve that treatment. I don't think, I don't think servers, I don't think servers, you know, that kind of fear people have that servers would corrupt or, or, you know, bespoil your food. I don't think that's to be worried about, but your server can make your evening a lot better or a lot worse, and I would suggest honey instead of vinegar when it comes to your... Interesting. And what about, was it strip steaks at strip clubs? Oh, oh, yeah. I, um, uh, I, reviewed a, um, I reviewed this steakhouse at the Penthouse Executive Club in New York, which has, you know, topless uh, dancers coming to your table. Um, you know, one of the first things that happens when you go there is, you know, uh, mostly nude women come and ask if you'd like dining partners, you know, if, you, if, if they should sit down and, and have your meal with you. Um, I, that was not, I mean, that sounds like a stunt, but actually it, it had a serious element because it was, uh, it was widely said by some of the city's most devoted steak eaters that the steaks at this place were among the city's best, and they were. Um, and it was this really weird cognitive dissonance that a, an atmosphere that you would not expect to care at all about food, um, had these amazing steaks aged in a special aging room that had been set up to the specifications of the chef who was then cooking there. He's since moved on. But. Yeah, so I reviewed, a, I reviewed a nudie restaurant. Okay. Was that a first for the New York Times? I think it was. Yeah. A lot of restaurants here... We're not, we're not known for our randiness, but <laughs> I've done a little bit to try to change that. A lot of restaurants here and probably everywhere else are struggling. Um, so what five tips would you give a restaurateur in this economy? 
You know, uh, in, 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 in housing, people always say location, location, location. I think when I see a restaurant fail from the get-go, most often the reason is because it hasn't understood its neighborhood. It hasn't, it hasn't understood whether there's really a kind of possibility for it and a niche for it in the exact neighborhood it's occupying. Um, so my number one piece of advice would be, you know, be very sure that what you're offering uh, fits the context in which you're offering it, the geography where you're offering it. Um, you know, pay a lot of attention to price. Um, people are very, customers are smart and they can tell when they're being fleeced um, and I think you need to price the things on your menu very carefully and I think you need to give people um, several routes through the restaurant. You need to make it a restaurant that they can um, that they can enjoy at one price point or at another price point, a restaurant in which they can have you know, an enormously prolonged meal or, or a lighter meal. You have to make the restaurant user friendly in that way. I don't know if that's five things, but there's probably five things in there, right? Okay. <laughs> Have you seen restaurants in New York lower their prices in this economy? Yes, yeah. Um, a lot of restaurants have, and a lot of restaurants have, have remade themselves in a more casual vein entirely. You know, I mean, they've done things to the decor that's, that is, uh, they've made changes to the decor that, that make the restaurant more casual, um, that go with a lower price point. They've lowered the prices. They've, they've done things with a menu that maybe isn't an absolute lowering of a price, but, but gives you a cheaper route through the restaurant. Um, I've seen a lot of that. And, and what we don't see is restaurants at a certain price point and a certain level of, of ambition opening at all. You know, the new restaurants that are coming along. We have a very celebrated Greek chef in New York named Michael Silakis. And every, it's interesting, every restaurant he's opened in recent years has been cheaper and cheaper than the last. And it's sort of the opposite trajectory of a chef who's just coming into his own, but absolutely evocative of what's going on with the restaurant economy in New York and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. A popular feature at the La Jolla Light, which is the paper I publish, is 10 questions. And it's a tradition to ask that if you had dinner with any eight people... Why eight? Because I was... A and then there's, we're going we're to be a nine top, because that's going to be... I'm going to be the ninth person, right? Yeah, I guess. I'm just worried about... I'm just worried about okay, the culinary well, things. Okay no, me. I'll do eight. I'll do eight. Okay. I'll do eight. With any eight people, living or dead, with whom would you dine? Hmm. Well, uh, let's see. It's a dinner, so we want it's it. A so we want it to be lively and fun. We want good conversation. So this is probably like a facile answer, but let's start with, um, let's say, Dorothy Parker and Oscar Wilde. Okay. Because now we've got some good conversation going, right? Absolutely. And then I want it to be a little perverse. Okay. So let's throw Dick Cheney in. <laughs> I told you, wouldn't it's not that, a conservative no, audience. I mean, wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? Right? If he didn't bring his gun. And then I, then I would want to satisfy my own uh, petty curiosity. So let's throw Cher into the mix, because I'd like to see what that level of self-preservation looks like up close and personal. <laughs> and you would seat her next to Cheney. And I think if we're going to have Cher, I think I'll throw Kathy Griffin in the mix, because I want to see what she looks like looking at that level of self-preservation up close and personal. All right. How many people do I have left? You have three more left. Um, I would want uh, my grandmother and my mother there. 
both of them have been gone for anywhere from 12 to 17 years, because if I can have living or dead, I can see them again. Right, that's a good one. And then I'd probably invite a sibling, because it would be selfish to have mom and grandma there and not share it with a sibling. So I'll invite my sister, I'll invite my sister Adele, although I think we have a gender imbalance, so I'll, inv- I'll invite my brother Mark. Okay. Adele's gone. Mark's in. So you got your aid. Now, at what restaurant would you have this dinner? Hmm. Wow. Where should we have this dinner? Well, my grandmother never liked any restaurant because she didn't think it was, she thought it was criminal to pay for food that she didn't like as well as her own. (laughs) She was a humble woman in many ways, but not when it came to food. So, uh, you know, ah, wow, wow. You know what, I'm going to say we'll have it at Le Burner Den because I don't think my mother ever went there and uh, she had to eat too much meat and not as much seafood as she would have liked in our family. So let's let, let's let, let's let mom's taste govern the restaurant choice and let's give her dinner at Le Burner Den. Okay. And what are you going to have for dinner? Oh, this, this is too prolonged. <laughs> What are we going to have for dinner? Well, we're going to have seafood because we're at Le Bernardin. And for first course? I don't have that. Well, no, seriously, I don't have the menu in front of me. I mean, I haven't memorized You could have anything. Well, we'll have some langoustines. Okay. I, I mean, I know they usually have some dish with langoustines at Le Bernardin, and who doesn't love a langoustine? Um, and for a main course, you know, uh, it, depends on what, it depends on what season we're in, well, what, what they're serving. What do you think Dick Cheney would like to have? <laughs> Dick Cheney? Yeah, what would he like to have for dinner? Well, let's see. Well, let's see. Let's see. Chilean sea bass is politically incorrect, so he'll probably order that. And dessert? Whatever, whatever the most o- whatever the most overfished thing is, Dick's going to order. Just to, just to be ornery. And dessert? Dessert? Something chocolate, you know. After all that virtuous seafood, we should get a little bit of a, a decadence, you know. Now, we've seen a lot of food fads come and go. What do you think's the next food fad? Well, right now, we are absolutely drowning in fried chicken in New York City, um, uh, which, is, which is really interesting, and um, I, I'm still waiting for someone to... Someone needs is that to write, because they're cheaping down? Or? Yeah, someone needs to write the definitive um, uh, kind of, you know, like maybe an Alan Richmond GQ-style food article about it, because it is such an interesting reflection of the moment. Um, it's the convergence of something you can, uh, something you can make at a lower price point, something that allows you to be a little bit creative because whatever whatever that batter is, however you're frying it, uh, you know, enables you to take a, a kind of long time staple and inject some creativity into it. Um, and it's you know, I think right now people are embracing comfort foods in various forms. And so you know, you get you have a low price, you have comfort food, but you have this sort of archetypal thing that does allow for some improvisation. So it's an interesting canvas that chefs are using right now. But I'm getting a little sick of it. <laughs> and what's the next hot restaurant town? Who? Um, the next hot restaurant town, well, let's see, I, mean, I think the current one people would say is Portland, Oregon. I mean, in terms of like hotter than people expect it to be. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, every, every, every city has come so far. I don't know that there are any surprises out there. I'd have to see demographic information on who's moving where. The Times, I know, just wrote about Portland, Maine, um, and, and that's apparently coming into its own. So maybe Portland, Maine's the next hot restaurant. Okay. Every job... Uh, generates new kinds of self-awareness when you're in the line of fire. What's the most profound thing you learned about yourself in doing the job as restaurant critic? Um, That I do have some willpower. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, actually, I think probably... uh, 
I have more stamina than I thought I did. It's, it's a job that um, requires an enormous amount of energy um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the scheduling, in terms of marching out every night and sometimes having to um, sit in a restaurant for three or four hours, uh, in terms of having to entertain people at that table um, and kind of keep your spirits high, and then in terms of the writing. I, I was, um, I'm probably nowhere near the best you know, the best, best restaurant critic the Times had, but I'm probably the most prolific. I mean, I, I blogged, I did a lot of those longer articles we talked about, I filed my review every week, I filed briefs, um, and I, I would have, if you told me at the outset that I would last five and a half years doing that um, and still be able to produce something that felt remotely fresh at the end of it, I don't know that I would have believed you, but I did. But I'm about to kind of have myself put into a coma for a few months to regenerate. Will you miss it? Absolutely. I mean, we talked earlier about um, Oya and Ubuntu, and that that ability to stumble across something magnificent that you weren't expecting, um, and then to share it with the world is is such an amazing privilege that it'll be very difficult to let go of that. But. It's a very regimented life. It's a life that uh, socially allows you very little spontaneity. And so for everything I'll, I'll lose, including the expense account, there's a lot I'll gain. And what did you learn about yourself writing this book? Oh, um, wow. Uh, well, I knew everything in it. <laughs> it didn't require. It was about you. It didn't require a lot of reporting. You know, I think the thing I think I think the thing I most learned is how crazily distorted self-image is. Um, when I went back, uh, everything in the book is is true and accurate, and my, my struggles with weight are genuine. And there are photos that document. It's hard to believe looking at you. It, there are photos that document it um, very well. But what was interesting is when I went back and looked. Um, when I was gathering photos, both for the writing to kind of prompt memories and, and for the photos to be included in the book, at almost every, almost every photo I saw, at almost every point, I'm like, wow, I remember myself 10 pounds heavier than that. Um, and as much as I knew about the distortion of self-image and how inaccurate it can be, um, that was a real eye-opening experience to realize that in real time, so many of us don't really see ourselves clearly, and I certainly didn't. You, you write about your family. How did your siblings feel about the book? Um, they were uh, startled because the book is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the book is very, very candid. It's, it's, um, it's very unguarded. You know, I, I don't try to make myself look good, and, I, and I'm very honest about a lot of intimate stuff. Um, I think they felt startled and protective. I mean, when they, when they, I showed them the book in, in manuscript form when I could still change things because I wanted to make sure if there was anything I'd said about any of them that they thought was out of bounds, um, that they would have a chance to ask me to take it out because just because I decided to write uh, a candid memoir doesn't mean everybody in my family's fair game. Um, but they didn't, um, I, I kind of knew what would and wouldn't set off alarms, so they didn't ask me to change anything, but they did say, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want you know, to commit to words that will be around for a while, perhaps all of this stuff? Um, so they felt protective in, this, in a really sweet way. I have a wonderful family. You revealed a lot about yourself here. When you write as a restaurant critic, you reveal a lot of secrets about restaurants. You, in 2002, wrote a book uh, about your uh, experience on the campaign trail with uh, George W. Bush. Um, what secrets can you share with the audience uh, that you learned about W. while you were covering his campaign? 
Well, you know, I, I, I can share some of my favorite stuff from the book. I, I can't share anything outside of the book because I've always felt very strongly as a reporter that when something is off the record, you know, it's off the record and there's not a statute of limitations. But there was plenty that was on the record to write and talk about. And, um, you know, uh, I think it's probably most interesting to say now um, because it, it's easy to lose sight of it. George Bush proved not to be an intellectually curious man. He proved to be a man that could have a very kind of cavalier attitude about uh, information. Um, but because of that, we've all uh, extrapolated and said, or not all, but a lot of people have extrapolated and said he's a dumb man. And, you know, I spent two and a half years um, watching him and, and with him probably one out of every three days. And he's not a dumb man. That wasn't his problem. And I remember very distinctly um, an incident on the plane one day, on the campaign plane, where he had just done a, a, a remote teleconference thing with the newspaper publishers association. And he had fielded uh, three questions, and we were all able to watch what he was doing. Um, and one of the questions had been from Arthur Salzberger, Jr., the publisher of the New York Times. And immediately upon the conclusion of this, the press was hustled onto the plane, and, and Bush came to the plane, and he walked back in the plane. And he walked straight up to me, and he looked at me and he said, so, did Arthur Salzberger, Jr. work his way to the top? And then he just kind of pivoted and walked away. And I thought, you know, um, that's a very fair statement because we were all in the press talking about nepotism, 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 and that was an absolutely fair issue to bring up as it pertained to George W. Bush. But he very quickly saw right then and there. that was It was clearly not planted. I mean, he, ma he made the most biting and astute observation in just a few words that he could have. So he wasn't a dumb guy. Did you like him? Um, I liked him as a person to interact with. You know, I mean, uh, liking someone and whether they are the best choice for president are two very different things. But he could be a very he could he could be a very cordial person. Um, he could be a very um, considerate person, uh, and he was a. Um, uh, at that point in time, a sort of accessible, affable person. You know, um, politicians can be difficult or easier to cover, and he um, he made it easy and um, warm in ways that other politicians sometimes don't. Not everyone here may know that you have a La Jolla connection. I do. Uh, your family moved here when you were in college. Yep. What memories? And they lived in the shores on Camino de Oro. Calle de Oro. Calle de Oro. What memories of La Jolla would you like to share? Well, I just remember, I mean, when, when they moved here, I'm not sure I'd ever been to California. Um, if I had, it had been really quick. Um, so, so much of, um, so much of uh, obvious things in Southern California were exotic to me. We would, um, at Chris, every Christmas Eve, we would um, have gin and tonics or vodka and tonics right before the meal, and we would get the limes and lemons from a tree in the backyard. And to me, that was just like, this is the most amazing thing, you know? Um, and I remember on Christmas Day, looking out, we were, we were a couple blocks from the La Jolla Shores Beach. I remember Christmas days, you'd look out the window and you'd see people carrying their surfboards down to the water. You know, if you're raised in the Northeast with snow and a more traditional Christmas, getting, getting the Christmas Eve lemons from your yard and seeing surfboarders go by on Christmas Day, it's pretty exotic. Yeah, it is. In a great way. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> your next assignment is going to be a writer at large for the Sunday Times magazine. What can we expect to see 
over your under your byline? What what are you going to cover? What topics will interest you? Um, I don't know what stories I'll do, but the idea behind the job was that I could do uh, a combination of all the things I've done to date. You know, I could do if 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 it was a restaurant or food story that seemed the most urgent or uh, compelling to do at a given moment, I could do that. I know I'll be doing a bit of politics because that's something the magazine likes to cover, and um, they want me to do that. Um, I'll do some culture stuff. I've I've had a good time over the years profiling celebrities during various kind of uh, phases of my career, and I really enjoy um, trying to kind of uh, dig be- beyond and behind the facade of, of celebrities and writing writing about them. Not those sort of you know Vanity Fair celebrity worship things, but 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 articles that have little telling details that tell you something about a celebrity that the celebrity perhaps doesn't want you to know. Do you have a list yet of... No, no. You can't make a list because you can only get to the celebrities who have something to promote. It's a two-way street, so it's like, you know, you have to keep an eye out for who's got something to gain and, and will let you in the door, you know. Well, Frank, thank you for answering my questions, and it's now time to ask the audience to give questions. Uh, can you please uh, send your questions to the aisle, and they will be picked up, and uh, then I will read your questions. Okay, too sweet. Addiction to corn sweeteners has impacted offerings of local restaurants. How can we as consumers counter this trend? Counter the trend of, I'm sorry? Uh, Corn sweeteners being used in restaurants. Well, I mean, you can. Uh, you always have the right to ask a restaurant that you're patronizing what the ingredients of anything are. So um, uh, you can uh, you can try to hold the restaurant to a standard of, of, of complete disclosure and candor about ingredients, and then you can vote with your feet. You know, if a restaurant is um, is using ingredients, including corn, you know, corn syrups and stuff like that, that uh, that you think should not be what you're putting in your body or should not be rewarded, you know, vote with your feet. Go to another restaurant. How did you find or discover unknown restaurants, like the one attached to a yoga studio? Um, Well, you know, in this day and age, I wish I had some sort of great self-aggrandizing answer about what a great sleuth I was. But in in the Internet age and in in this foodie age, so many people are out there prospecting all the time that if you just kind of read widely on the Internet um, and talk widely with people, nothing goes undiscovered for very long. And, I, and what I was doing at the Times and what the Times has always done is not really kind of found total secrets, but taken something that was maybe still a quarter secret, you know, and, uh, and, and put an end to that in its entirety, yeah. What is San Diego's reputation in the food restaurant world? Uh, you know, uh, to be really honest, not, not a particularly prominent one. Um, no, I mean... Uh, well, I'm not. I'm not. It's okay. My husband and I just moved here from San Francisco, and our friends are tired of hearing of us whine. Well, I don't. I, what I'm saying is not that your whining is 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 warranted, you know, or legitimate. Um, the question is, what's the reputation of San Diego in the food universe, and and rightly or wrongly, and I don't know which because I have not eaten here in many years. Um, San Diego does not command a lot of foodie attention and respect, and I, I don't. And that could be a great oversight. I don't know. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Who disagrees? Raise your hand. Oh, some loyal people here. Okay, good. Um, this is a long one. I'd like to be at the table watching Kathy Griffin in action with Dick Cheney. What is in a- wait? What does in action mean? Because I'm not sure I want to watch that. <laughs> you just asked them to dinner to yeah. have dinner. <laughs> This is a PG-13 dinner, okay? All right. Um, Grandma's going to be there, right? Oh, that's right. 
Do you think Grandma will like Cher? Oh, she'd love Cher. Are you kidding me? My grandmother was a gaudy Italian who once painted her phone gold because she thought that would be cool. Why were you asked to be a restaurant critic? Um, I was asked to be a restaurant critic because um, at the time um, that the you know, up, up, upper people at the Times were making the decision, um, they were trying to think very broadly about not just people who had uh, proven food erudition, but people whose writing styles they liked, who they thought had lively personalities, and people whose work over time suggested they could, you know, churn out the copy uh, at the rate it needed to be without it becoming uh, stale or lifeless. Um, so I was chosen sort of on writing and personality grounds with the knowledge that I was someone who'd always been a food lover um, and someone who'd been exposed to a, to a, a big and broad universe of food. Um, and uh, I think the times at the end of the day felt, especially now, when, when fewer and fewer of our readers are local, and so fewer and fewer restaurant review readers are looking for a service guide, more of them are looking uh, for a vicarious literary experience, I think they felt that they wanted to uh, choose the, you know, put the journalism part of the choice uh, ahead of the food part of the choice. Mm-hmm. What is your view of vegetarianism? Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I respect vegetarians. Um, it's not the way I choose to eat, um, but I think, it's a, I think it's an absolutely sensible, often healthy, um, and, uh, and, and commendably ethical way to eat. Um, I, just, I just get bothered when people who eat a certain way, be it vegetarian or vegan, uh, look down on those of us who don't. I mean, I think what you eat is a very personal choice, um, and there are certainly some, some smart and ethical decisions we should all make no matter how we're eating, you know, on the kind of vegetarian carnivore scale. Um, but uh, uh, that's... I think I answered that. Yeah. The sentence didn't have an ending, but I think I... Yeah. <laughs> When you go to a different city, what sources do you use to locate restaurants? You know, I, I, I read pretty regularly and widely, so I usually have a couple of restaurants in my head already. Um, but uh, I look at—I uh, mean, I look at everything from uh, the local Zagat guide, which can be which can be useful, but in a very limited way. You have to look at it very carefully. I mean, I think it can be a good way to get. Uh, to get a first list drawn up, but then I think you have to uh, then plug those names into you know into your local newspaper search engine, um, into some of the kind of better blogs in the area, um, because you have to remember that the Zagat system is um, easily manipulated. How? Well, when when people are filling out the surveys, they're doing it uh, voluntarily. You know, it's not so when a, a Zagat survey is not me gathering a hundred people in this room at random, and this this in fact wouldn't scientifically be a random sample. But it's you're not gathering um, one hundred people randomly and asking them what they thought of the restaurant. You're sending out these surveys, and people send them in, and they have to be people who want to fill out the survey and have asked for them to begin with. And so a restaurant's partisans are going to stuff the ballot box. Um, and what Zagat is showing you isn't what do people think the best restaurant is, it's which restaurant has the most ardent band of followers who went through the Zagat process. Um, and that tells you something, but it doesn't tell you everything. Did you like the star system at the, at the Times? The star system is reductive and constraining, but I think that it is um, such a part of Times lore, um, and it's so beloved by restaurant uh, restaurant aficionados. You know, they so enjoy the whole kind of game of what restaurant's going to get how many stars and what has. So I think it's just it's something that will never go away, and for the sake of tradition, 
never should go away. But it can be a frustrating thing because you're boiling, you're boiling something that can be much too complicated to be boiled down into a numerical rating. This is a question that's really dear to me. Uh, you've been in the news business for a long time. Can you discuss the future of the industry? Uh, bleak. <laughs> no, um, that's not the answer. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you really think there's a different answer? I think it's going to morph into something else, but I don't think it's going to be over. Well, no, I don't think it's going to be o- over, but the problem is morph into what and, and how will it be capitalized. The problem is all the morphing that we're watching doesn't create a revenue stream for journalism. And I think what, people, what too many people don't understand as the whole situation evolves is how expensive the most important journalism is to produce. And I'm not talking about restaurant criticism. I'm talking about the fact that I think the New York Times right now is the only American newspaper left with, a, with, a, with an Iraq bureau, you know, because it costs so much money. Um, and people who are getting their news through Google News or going to the Huffington Post, those aren't periodicals those are aggregators and if the if the sort if if the articles that they're grabbing and posting if the people actually kind of gathering the information and producing that sort of more primary source material if that goes away there will be nothing to aggregate um, and i don't know what kind of information we're going to be left with and this supports if you if you care about and if you care about what's, if you care about knowing what's going on in Iraq, and you care about what, knowing what's going on in Washington D.C., um, support your local newspapers and magazines. I mean, so, or support the newspapers and magazines that you feel are still giving you reliable, complete information. Because to assume they'll be around and able to gather that information in a truly sophisticated way ten years from now is a big, big assumption, and it may be wrong. I agree. Okay, let's go to a happy note. Have you thought about creating a food TV show to help people curb overeating? Um, you know, no. Um, I, would, I, I enjoy talking about this subject, and I'd like to continue talking about it because I would, it would make me feel great if the stuff I discuss in this book and the, the wisdom, the little bits of wisdom I do acquire um, in this book or that I kind of show myself acquiring, if that could help somebody have an easier time with these issues than I had, that would be absolutely sensational and make me a very happy man. But I don't want to be forever identified as Frank the Overeater. You know, I mean, in the same way, in the same way that my journalistic interests have changed so much through time. My little brother jokes, I don't have a career, I have an attention deficit disorder. Um, and that's true. Um, and, I don't, and, and, and within my attention deficit disorder, I don't want to become the broken record of, of Frank the Overeater. How do you maintain your weight uh, when you eat out seven days a week? Do you sk- skip bread and wine? No, no, I never skip wine. Um, I like it too much. Um, and I frequently don't skip the bread because I like that too, although I don't, uh, I don't do that sort of heedless, constant you know, arm going back again and again to the bread basket. I mean, the answer is, is sort of simple and, 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 and not terribly interesting. When, uh, when I don't need to and when the food isn't utterly compelling, I don't clean my plate. When the food is utterly compelling, I do clean my plate so that I never have a kind of built-up sense of deprivation, you know, because what always happened with me is I would be in such uh, states of extreme denial that when it all kind of built up and spilled out, you know, it would be these unbelievable pig outs. And I exercise very faithfully and regularly. Um, I love to eat. 
Um, I am not somebody who can eat fewer than 3,500, 4,000 calories a day. That's the way I'm wired. That's the way I like to be. Um, and so I uh, don't let myself off the hook exercise-wise because I want to continue eating that much, and I don't want to go back to looking like the picture in that book with me and George W. Bush where I'm a dead ringer for Jabba the Hutt. So I am... Um, <laughs> So I exercise. exercising is my, by, by thinking of it as my down payment on the pleasure of eating, um, it, that gives me the motivation I need um, and, uh, and keeps me on the straight and narrow-ish. And again, need a normal life where you can be at a gym and... Um... You know, I think it's really important if, if, you, if, if, you, if you love food and you want to enjoy food without being undone by it, um, and exercise is one of the things that works for you, um, I think it is really important to construct your life in such a way where you can make exercise a priority. You know, I've, I've, um, I've spent a lot of money in recent years on trainers, um, and it's not, and, and I'm not someone who has the kind of income where that is an easy decision to make. You know, there are things that don't get purchased um, on account of that, but I know that I need to create structures in my life that hold me to the promise of exercising. So do you still use a trainer? Yeah, I don't use them as often, but I mean, it, it was, there was a kind of nice poetry in the restaurant critic years because I would take all of that money I was saving on food. I mean, if you opened my fridge, all you saw was like condiments, coffee, and a lot of white wine. Yeah, there wasn't much food in there. There didn't need to be. Um, but I took all that money I saved on meals, and I kind of funneled it into personal trainers um, because I still, I mean, I, I was eating a lot. I mean, if, if I hadn't been exercising, I would have gained enormous amounts of weight because you cannot be a restaurant critic and restrain your you know, calorie intake to 2,000 calories a day. You're not going to be doing the job properly. And you're not going to be enjoying the best of it. Who do you read? Um, in general or... Uh, Question. Who do you I mean, I read, I, I read a real hodgepodge of stuff. I mean, uh, I can tell you what I've read most recently right now. I'm about two-thirds of the way through Laurie Moore's new novel, uh, A Gate at the Stairs, because I like her. And I like, I like that sort of literary fiction, but not hyper-literary fiction. Um, I, I read, I've read everything Michael Connolly's written, because I'm, I'm a kind of police procedural mystery junkie. Um, uh, I recently read a couple of Richard Yates's novels because I had found my way just before the movie came out to Revolutionary Road, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book that was not well served by that movie. But now I'm straying into other colleagues' turf, and I should just shut up because I let the movie critics do the movie criticizing. Back to restaurants. When I visit New York City, what two must-go restaurants should I try? Well, you know, that's always hard to answer without knowing what the person's budget is. Um, you know, if money is no object, you should go to the restaurant Maza. That's M-A-S-A, which is the most expensive restaurant in New York. It is the sushi. It's like the Zen sushi oh, temple in the Time Warner Center. Um, and if you're going to just blow an enormous amount of money on an incredible meal and you like Japanese food in general and, and sushi in particular, it is a truly, truly peak experience. Um, and then maybe wander over to Convivio in Tudor City Place because that's such an interesting little enclave of the city. And if you edit that menu down to the pasta, Michael White is, an Ital is a, not an Italian chef, but a chef of Italian food in New York who right now is doing some of the most delicious pasta in the city. Now, somewhere I read that your, one of your favorites is my favorite, which is 11 Madison Park. Mm -hmm. Is that still one of your favorites? I love 11 Madison Park. In fact, um, 
uh, I, I think it's the only restaurant I reviewed three times uh, during my five and a half years, um, constantly upgrading it because it kept getting better. It's got a young, I think he's still just 29 years old, a young chef named Daniel Campton Place. Campton Place, right. yeah, and um, he's just he's clearly like you know come into the into the very front rank of American chefs and has a great career ahead of him because he's so young, like much younger than Thomas Keller or Jean-Georges Van Gerichten or some of those people. What was the most exciting part of being the New York Times restaurant critic? You know, I think it's what, it's what I already said um, about being able to, um, to call out merit where you found it. But I would add to that, um, it's really neat to have a job that enables you to bring other people along for the adventure um, and that enables you to, uh, to do something so kind of sweet and exciting for the people you love in your life. You know, so being able to regularly take my, my, my dearest friends um, and my closest relatives out to dinner, um, and it, it, it's, it's almost more of a kind of interesting cloak-and-dagger adventure for them than it is for me after a certain point because I'm accustomed to it. But it's really neat to have a job that you can share with other people and that, um, uh, and that enables you to kind of uh, give people you care about uh, a fun experience experience. Hmm. I can imagine. Do you believe in culinary intelligence or aptitude? Um, in, a, in an eater, in a chef? or Sure. I mean, I think I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the phrase means, but in the same way that certain people have musical gifts, certain people have culinary gifts. Absolutely. Everybody, everybody is good at different things, and everybody can become better at something by, by deciding to be better at it, but um, everybody has a sort of innate um, proclivity or a lack thereof towards certain activities. Okay, last one. And you don't have to be polite. Have you spent enough time in San Diego to recommend any restaurant? No. Um, I, uh, I, I wish I would be irresponsible to say so. I, mean, I, have, I, have not been in, I have not eaten in San Diego since I would visit my parents here um, uh, years and years ago. And, and they moved away from La Jolla, I think it's more than a decade ago now. So... Um, and some of the restaurants my father patronized then are gone. Uh, in the book, I write a lot about a restaurant called Remington's in Del Mar, which is long gone because it had these Flintstonian portions that my family loved. I mean, we consider Rem- Remington- Remington's was our Everest, but we climbed it every year, you know. And was- no, we would talk about it, you know, for weeks in advance because the whole thing would be like who would get through their, you know, four-pound prime rib, you know. And I'm sad to say I always did. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.